Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, even as the rain waters the ground, so your Sabbath day refreshes our souls. And Lord, would you help us uh, to make good use of the great gift of this entire day. Uh, We pray in Christ's name, amen. So, young people, you can head out the door. And, Lord willing, we're going to wrap up uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 29, on the Lord's Supper. And so I want to just give a quick recap of where we are so that we can hopefully dive into the last couple of sections. Um, So, Section 1 emphasizes what the Lord's Supper is. Uh, it, on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took bread. Uh, he instituted the Lord's Supper. Section number two, all the way down through section five, uh, I'm sorry, section six. So one, what the Lord's Supper is, And then really, two to six, is what the Lord's Supper is not. And we need to bear in mind that the confession is written in a historic context. It's written in the the mid-1600s. England has been going through this tug of war between are we Roman Catholic or are we Protestant? And, you know, King Henry VIII and then uh, Bloody Mary, she's the Roman Catholic queen. And then all these back and forths between people being in power who are Protestant versus then getting killed because the Roman Catholics are in power. And then when the Protestants get back in power, the Roman Catholics get killed. And so it's a, it's a horrible time in England. But Roman Catholicism really is the big backdrop. Uh, and that's something important to remember, first off, because the confession is written to an audience. It's written to address an issue uh, at that, that, that is very much there in that day. It's an issue that is timeless, you know, the the truths that it's saying are timeless, but if you ever wonder why the confession spends so much time uh, uh, disagreeing with Roman Catholic theology, it's because that's where they were. Uh, I think if the church were going to gather and do a confession today, you probably wouldn't see as much Roman Catholic stuff in it you would probably see more, this is not what the evangelical movement says. Or, you know, the, the, the situation in our day is different from the situation in their day, but the truths that they are teaching are timeless. And, and I think that's an important thing for us to recognize because a lot of people think, why are you bashing the Roman Catholics? The Roman Catholics are not that big a force. They're not that big a presence. Uh, and plus, I have Roman Catholic friends that I believe 
are genuine believers in Christ, why are we always attacking the Roman Catholics? It's because of the context. It's because of the historic context. Uh, and so in sections 2 through 6, they're emphasizing what the, confe- or what the uh, Lord's Supper is not, and it is not... Section 3 tells us that all the congregation is to partake of both Elements. Now, for most of us today, that may not seem... Why, why would you make a point of saying that? But that was a central thing for Roman Catholics. And it still is. Uh, in in uh, the 1960s, the Roman Catholic Church uh, came out with the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council met from the early 60s to the late 60s. And it moved the Roman, it supposedly moved the Roman Catholic Church more towards the gospel, more towards evangelicalism. But you have many Catholics that don't like that new position. And so the, the term is the Tridentine Mass. Uh, and I'm not sure why Tridentine, uh, other than, I don't think it has anything to do with the word trident. Uh, <laughs> But but the Tridentine Mass is according to how the Roman Catholic Church participated or celebrated it up through Vatican II. And then after Vatican II, they supposedly celebrate it in a way that the individuals in the congregation do get to partake of the cup. But before that, the individuals in the congregation were not allowed to partake of the cup because it is Christ's blood, and some of it might spill. Uh, So in section 3, the Lord has in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants but to none who are not then present in the congregation. And that, anybody have any idea why that would be a deal? None who are not then present in the congregation. Right. So the idea of a priest taking and bringing communion to the person in their home, and then also going into the next section... Uh, where we speak of private masses. That's kind of a transition uh, into section four. Private masses or receiving this sacrament by a priest or any other alone, as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, lifting them up, carrying them about for adoration, reserving them for any pretended religious use, are all contrary to the nature of this sacrament and to the institution of Christ. So one of the things in the 1600s, we've got a different worldview. Uh, a lot of people like to get into the, the question of, 
establishmentarianism is the confession theonomic because it says that all men everywhere are obliged to obey the law of God. Is the confession a theonomic thing? We're asking the wrong questions. So please hear me on this, especially those who, who have, have spent some time in the arena of this debate. The confession is not a theonomic document. It's also not a non-theonomic document. Theonomy is a question that was never raised in the 1600s. If anything, I would say theonomy was already assumed uh, in the 1600s. And whether that's true or not, whether that's correct or not, is another matter. But in the 1600s, you automatically had this idea that there is to be one true religion in any given country. And, and interestingly, we still recognize that today when, you know, what is Saudi Arabia religiously? It's a Muslim country. Uh, would we ever say that Saudi Arabia is a pluralistic society? No. no. <laughs> it's a Muslim country. It's on their flag uh, their flag, that sword that is underneath on the, on the flag of Saudi Arabia, is one of the swords of Muhammad. Uh, and, and it is a distinctly Muslim country. And that's not anything new in world history. What's new in world history are countries like the United States saying we are not a Christian country. Uh, we are a pluralistic society. Everybody has the right to worship as they please. That's completely new in human development. Whether it's good or not is a separate matter. But the 1600s does not know the concept of pluralism. Well, so that obviously, I mean, so the, the question is, is America founded as a Christian nation and we've moved away from it? Um, and that is a big debate uh, among historians. And, and just a couple of examples are you've got Thomas Jefferson and John Adams in their correspondence. John Adams is supposedly the one who came up. Right, right, right. But we're talking about the United States as a country. Uh, John Adams supposedly said, you know, this wall of separation between church and state, or Thomas Jefferson in the letter to the Danfield Baptist Convention, and, of course, Benjamin Franklin, who was a significant figure, uh, is a complete pagan, was a complete pagan. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a deist and, and came up with his own Bible where he carved all the miracles. He literally took a knife and cut anything supernatural out of the Bible. Uh, at the very least, I think we could all agree that the Christian worldview 
was the dominant worldview behind these people who, who formed a new society. And the idea of transcendent human rights is, is something that assumes a creator God. Uh, transcendent human rights assumes that there's something above us that we have. So, so the reason I can't walk up and just shoot you in the head is not law of the jungle. You might shoot me back. The, the reason that I can't shoot you in the head is because there is a God. And that God calls me to act in... And, and that's, yeah, so, so the whole, well, yeah, so at any rate, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to emphasize in, in the discussion of the Lord's Supper is simply, and, and so this is where I got off track. The, the private masses issue, what was very, very common, uh, and if, uh, how many, you all know that I'm a Pride and Prejudice fan, uh, it's my one guilty, uh, secret. Uh, not much of a secret, obviously, but in Pride and Prejudice, uh, one of the reasons I like uh, the books, or the book, and, and I like the original A&E version of the movie, is because I think it really very accurately reflects England and English society and the English way of thinking in the late 1800s. It, it's very true to the historic context. And one of the things, if you'll remember, Lady Catherine de Bourgh has her own chapel, and she calls her own minister. And so Mr. Collins is a toady of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And so, you know, when, when there's the scene when they're all coming out of church, you can see Mr. Collins ignoring everybody else that walks out the door, but as soon as Lady Catherine de Bourgh walks out the door, he's groveling, he's walking alongside her, he's making sure, you know, that she approved of the sermon and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and so there very much was this, this feudal idea where the Lord or Lady of the Manor had control over the congregation that was in his or her parish or, or estate and chose the minister who would be there and all that. So one of the things that these people were commonly doing, this is, this is where I'm driving to the point that I want to make out of section uh, four, I think. Okay, here's the point that I'm, that I'm, trying to drive to in section four, one of the things that they would do is they would say, listen, I am upper class. I have no business sitting next to someone who is a peasant farmer and pretending like we're equal. We are not equal. I have greater responsibilities. I have greater authority. I have greater worth than this peasant farmer. And so the idea of the Lord of the manor sitting together with the peasant farmer and taking communion together was shocking to them. And so this private masses thing, 
really is revolutionary. It's not just Roman Catholics. But in forbidding private masses, in forbidding the the pastor, the Anglican pastor, the Protestant pastor, I cannot go to, I mean, let's say, I don't know, uh, let's say President Joe Biden uh, becomes a communicant member at Sterling Presbyterian Church. Well, now, President Joe Biden does not, it's not going to be comfortable for him to come in, sit down. I mean, we got to have secret service. We got to have security. We got, he's, he's not just going to stroll in and just be part of the congregation. And so it would be helpful to him if me and the session would all schedule a time, jump in the car and drive to the White House to administer the Lord's Supper for him. Uh, because him sitting here in the middle of our congregation just would never happen. It would never work. It just doesn't fit. Uh, there, there is that class distinction. And so what the confession is doing by saying no private masses is they really are doing something revolutionary. It's revolutionary to say that everybody before the Lord is fully equal. This is offensive in the 1600s. It is completely against their worldview. It's completely against the worldview that's been around for over a thousand years. Uh, the, the idea that the Lord of the manor before Jesus Christ is at the exact same level as the peasant farmer is deeply offensive. It's deeply revolutionary. And and so, I don't want you to move past this section and saying no private masses, that just means we don't go into homes uh, and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper privately. Yes, it does mean that. It means something a lot more. It means that there are no class distinctions in this context of the Lord's Supper. Now, later, the confession, or in other places, the confession maintains class distinctions. Uh, In the larger and shorter catechism, questions on the fifth commandment. What are the duties of inferiors to superiors? What are the sins forbidden from inferiors to superiors? What are the duties of superiors to inferiors? What are the sins forbidden of superiors to inferiors? That's all very class distinction. That's not egalitarianism. That There's a clear class distinction that the confession understands, it recognizes, it teaches. It teaches very clearly on class distinctions and our roles according to the class in which we find ourselves. But to say no private masses is to say that in this Lord's Supper there is no class distinction. And, and that is revolutionary. That is a, a, a revolutionary statement uh, that the confession is making there in section 4. So as much as we might breeze over it, uh, let's pause and just recognize uh, just how 
forceful this thing is. And I want to say that in order to say this. I'm four minutes away and I need to finish. But I think maybe there can be a sense in each of, or in some of us, of why do we continue to study this document? Uh, why is this document important? Shouldn't we move on and get to more contemporary things? And, and one of the things about this document is it's seeking to simply say what Scripture says, no more, no less, but also it is very clearly making a break from the culture in which they find themselves. Uh, they're, they're, they're not doing what the culture around them says they ought to be doing. They really are trying to live out the principle of sola scriptura. So we move on from there, uh, and, and now we get into, in section 5, it is not transubstantiation. Uh, the outward elements in this sacrament, duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the name of the thing they represent to wit, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So, the confession is not only saying we're not Roman Catholic, it's also saying we're not Lutheran. Uh, the, the Lutheran position that this bread and this wine become Christ, uh, that Christ is in, with, around, and under, cannot be distinguished from the bread and wine. The confession saying, no, sometimes in the Bible, yes, when Jesus says, this is my body, he's referring to the bread. But he's using a metaphor. Amen. He's not saying, this is my body. And that's an important thing, because obviously it, divided the church, but also if you think about what we already said about baptism, that in the New Testament, in the Acts, when the apostle said, be baptized for the remission of sins, is he saying that baptism washes away your sins? No, he's drawing such a close connection between these two things, that you really cannot have the washing away of sins if you are not also baptized. Uh, the, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is strange. Now, we know that there's such a thing, the thief on the cross was certainly not baptized. But someone who continually lives their Christian life, refusing to be baptized, is in disobedience to God, and has no reason to be assured of their salvation. That's a very clear and very strong statement. So, so hear it again. Someone who refuses to be baptized has no reason for assurance. They have no reason to, to be assured that they are in right relationship with God if they're refusing this thing. In the same way with the Lord's Supper. In the same way. If we are not recognizing that in the Lord's Supper, we are partaking of Christ's death, the benefits of his death, resurrection, and ascension, that we are communing with him and with one another, 
then the person who says, I don't need the Lord's table, there's a deep, serious problem there. And they have no reason for assurance. Let me be explicit. They have no reason for assurance if they are regularly refusing the Lord's table. Now, the confession is going to move on into how it is that we are to examine ourselves. And I'm off track again. Um, Let's see. Section 5. The outward elements in the sacrament, duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called... Oh, I, I just read that. Uh, six, the doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consequence, consecration of a priest or by any other way, I love this word, is repugnant. <laughs> They're not just saying we disagree. They're saying this is repugnant. Uh huh. I'm 57. I've heard both. I've heard. I have heard many people say. I've heard many people in 50. Well, 57 years, but in 20 years of ministry, I've heard lots of people say, "I don't need to be baptized, and I don't need the Lord's Supper." <laughs> and it's a it's a dangerous, messy thing when they do that. All right. Well, I am over time, and I, I want to... So we will pick up, Lord willing, next week, and we will do Section 7 and 8, and we will plow through the rest of this thing, and I will stop dragging this out further. Uh, but I am out of time. So let's... Uh, Close with prayer, and I guess the one thing I would want you to take away from today is specifically that in the table we are all equal before the Lord. There is no Jew, no Gentile, there is no black, no white, there is no Hispanic, no gringo, there is no anything. (laughs) We are in Christ or we are out of Christ, and in the Lord's Supper... We are professing to the world that we are one. It is a sacrament of unity with Christ and unity with one another. So let's uh, close in prayer and go to our time of fellowship. Father, we do thank you for uh, these ones who have gone before us, who have fought fights, who have battled wars that thankfully we don't have to battle. Uh, Help us to learn. Uh, from their strengths as well as from their weaknesses, uh, but also to build uh, upon their work. In Christ's name, amen.